Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. And if you have a Bible, uh, grab that and meet me over in John chapter 1. And uh, Merry Christmas season to you, this Advent season. We are, we are what I would say is looking at the book of John as the unlikely Advent season, because if you know anything about the book of John, it doesn't, doesn't actually record Jesus's birth in it. And yet, I would tell you that if you read it diligently, what you'll see is you'll see the magnificence of Jesus and his birth all over the place. So over the next couple of weeks, we are looking at the birth of Jesus through the book of John. So grab that. Meet me in John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 9. On January 12, 2007, the world-renowned violinist Joshua Bell decided that he was going to do a social experiment. So he walked into Union Station in Washington, D.C. at 7.30 a.m. in the middle of rush hour, and he started playing some of the most extravagant, most complex pieces of music ever written. He spent 30 minutes playing Bach on a $3 million violin, and yet he did it wearing obscure clothing that would not make you think that he was anybody of any value. The night before he does this, he flies in from Boston where he sold out the Boston Symphony Orchestra with tickets that cost um, a lot of money, but the lowest amount of money that it would cost is $100 for a ticket. He sells out the place. He shows up in Washington, D.C. the next day, and thousands upon thousands of people walk by him and never even recognize him for a moment playing a $3 million violin in some of the most complex pieces in human history. What if, what if most of our lives are just too busy to see the beauty that's right in front of us? What if we don't slow down enough because we're so busy going from one thing to the next that we lack the margin to see and recognize the amazingness of life? What if, like you and me, like you and me I get up every single morning, get ready for work, and I don't even look at the tranquility of a sleeping baby that's right in front of me? Or I go from one thing to the next. I can't even recognize the perfect positioning of a sunrise through the morning dew every single day that God gives us. What if we run from one event to another, one practice to another, one meeting to another, we rise early, we grind all day, go to bed late, and we miss the beauty that's right in front of us. You see, I would tell you that Jesus, Jesus is the greatest beauty hiding in obscurity of everyday life that you and I, because we don't slow down enough to see him, oftentimes we miss him. The Apostle John, he takes the first chapter of the book of John in order to let you see Jesus for who he really is because seeing Jesus for who he really is is actually helps you to slow down and recognize the world for the way it was supposed to be. John wants you to understand and he wants to answer the most important question you will ever ask or answer and it is, who really is Jesus? It's the most important question you can answer. And John chapter 1 answers that question. You can think about John chapter 1 as almost like Jesus' LinkedIn profile. It's his resume. It's his job uh, application. It is, it is, it is it's job description, sorry. It's everything that you need to know about Jesus. Today, we're going to look at this again, and I want to show you who Jesus really is through the lens of John chapter 1. So with that, John chapter 1, verse 9, here's what the apostle John says. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, if you were here last week and you're an astute Bible um, reader and studier, you would notice that we actually skipped over a section in John chapter 1, and we skipped over the section that's about John the Baptist. Now, you need to kind of understand who John the Baptist is. He's an important figure. He's so important that Jesus would tell you that he's the most important human being to ever live. By the way, if you're new to Christianity... John the Baptist did not write the Gospel of John. 
John the Apostle did. He actually calls himself the beloved apostle throughout the entire thing and never names himself. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus who was born of a miracle through Elizabeth. There's this angel that comes to Elizabeth in her old age, and she tells him that he, she tells her that he's going to have a son that is going to be named John. And John's job, this is important, was to pave the way for the Messiah. John actually took what we call a Nazarite vow. It was an Old Testament way of setting yourself apart in order to be a prophet that paves the way. So he would have, he'd have been a guy who never shaved. He ate obscure things. Uh, he did, he uh, pertained from taking part in alcohol. He, he did a bunch of things in order to set himself apart as holy so that he could pave the way for Jesus. That's important because John chapter 1 verse 9 starts with, Jesus is the true light. What he wanted to show you is that John was not the true light. John's job was to point to the true light. He was supposed to be a conduit or a signpost to the true light. In essence, John's life was supposed to speak about the truth of the gospel. Now, the danger for many of us, just like the danger in that world, was that if you don't see the true light, you will fall for a counterfeit. Matter of fact, you'll continue to look to other things, these false lights, if you will, to give you hope at the expense of the truth. What John, the apostle, wanted you to know is if you don't look at the real thing, all these other things, including people like John, who are holy, godly people, will actually lead you away from Jesus because they're not the point. Listen, this is super, super important. If you get Jesus wrong, you will fall for a counterfeit. As a matter of fact, I would argue that you can't even know yourself correctly if you don't know Jesus because you're made in the image of God. You see, this is why so many of us have fallen for false identities. Not getting Jesus right will never let you get yourself right. Notice that John says that he, Jesus, gives true light to everyone. Other translations will tell you that Jesus enlightens the world to what truth and reality is supposed to be. Now think about the problems. A society without Jesus, a culture that has forgotten Christmas, or even in the natural south that moves so quickly that we disregard Jesus, that hasn't been enlightened by him, becomes enlightened by other things. I would tell you that our society is enlightened by what we call as progressive secularism that has led us to all kinds of false identities that is ruining us. Men are not leading their families anymore. And, and, and listen, I'll just tell you, there's nothing worse than a grown man or a grown boy with a beard that, that, that doesn't step up and love his family. Men, men aren't sacrificially leading their homes and laying down their lives like Paul would tell you, like Christ led the church. And when that happens, incarceration rates skyrocket, poverty increases, and the clarity of the true light begins to be dimmed to the point that we're warped into false identities and ideologies that mess up all of society. Y'all, the most vulnerable in our society is getting trampled on by all kinds of things, like pervasive cultural ideologies, thinking about that, that are led by selfishness and not sacrifice. And it's because we've lost our ability to see the world clearly. So things that society allows like abortions because kids are just inconvenient or taking girls who have worked their entire lives at a sport and then letting a dude show up and take their, rob them of their successes. Y'all, the Christmas story is meant, it's meant to let us slow down to see what reality is supposed to look like because if we don't, what you end up doing is having a warped view of yourself. Listen, I'm just telling you. If you tell an entire generation that all they are is evolved animals, don't be surprised when they act like it. You're so much more than that. Y'all, we are supposed to be protecting the most vulnerable, but whenever you don't see the true light and it gets lost, you stop protecting and you start destroying because you want to put yourself at the top. Can I just tell you that getting Jesus right is a matter of life and death, both for you and for all of society. 
You have to get Jesus right. Even, even Jesus, when he was hanging out with his disciples, asked them, hey, when, when people see me, who do they say that I am? Well, they're like, well, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist. And then Jesus says, okay, but who do you say that I am? That, that is the most important question you can ever ask yourself. Who do you say that I am? Well, Peter looks at him. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, of course. Like, where else will we go? Do you know what he does in that moment? Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you're right. He actually changes his name to Petra, which means rock, which was his whole identity. He says, you're no longer Simon, you're Peter. And I'm going to build my church through you and through that confession that you just made. See, the reality is, is whenever you see Jesus rightly, he redefines your identity and he shows you who you really are. Who do you say that he is? Everything hinges on how you answer that question. Listen, the true light when it's traded in for a counterfeit, what you get is you get destruction of society and you get, you get a joy that begins to crumble. See, Advent, Advent is about slowing down. It's about slowing down enough to recognize the reality. And I'm just telling you, if you don't recognize reality for what it really is, you will fall for a counterfeit. I need you to know, I need you to know that you are so much more than just an evolved animal. You were made on purpose you were designed in the image of God, and he cares so deeply about you that he wants you to see him rightly. Colossians chapter one, listen to what he says. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. He's talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where thr thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, listen, all things were created through him and for him. That's including you. And he is before all things, and in, all, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds, notice that's past tense. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that he could present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I told you last week, the book of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. You are the joy. You have so much value and so much worth that God himself would want to present you holy and blameless. The one who created all things and is in all things, he made you for him. You don't even understand how loved you are. See, so you aren't designed to do whatever you want or be whoever you want. Listen, it's not about you. And the moment you begin to realize that, you stop ruining your life because you run to counterfeits and you start resting in who God has made you to be. Like C.S. Lewis said, a fish is most free whenever it's designed to swim in the water that it swims. Yeah, it might feel restricting at times. But the reality is that that fish jumps out of the fishbowl. He doesn't jump to his freedom. He jumps to his death. Listen, Jesus was always meant to be the identity that you swim in. And the moment that you jump out of it, you don't swim to freedom. You actually begin to swim to your death. Did you know that when the U.S. Treasury decides that they want to teach somebody how to find a counterfeit bill, they don't show them a fake bill and say, study this. They show them the real thing. They say, I want you to hold this bill in your hand. I want you to smell it. I want you to feel it. I want you to see the texture of it and the design of it. I want you to understand the bill because if you understand the real thing, the counterfeits become obvious. A.W. Tozer. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let me just ask you, this, 
Christmas season, listen, I realize that we're, te- we're speaking to people that grew up in the cultural South. You've been familiar with Christian- Christmas your entire life, but do you know the real thing? Do you know it? Not, not can you tell me a Bible verse every now and then, but do you really know him? Can you tell the difference between the true light and the counterfeits of this world? Because if you can't, if you can't, it's going to destroy you. Listen, all of us are going to swim in this pool of Christianity, but you need to know who Jesus really is. Jesus is not your genie in a bottle or your magic eight ball. That's there to answer every question that you have whenever you ask him. He's not your social media inspiration, Jesus, that lifts you up in the morning whenever you see, you know, Philippians 4.13. Or he's not your angry God, Jesus, who wants to smite your boss every time that he makes you work a little later. No, Jesus should bring clarity to reality. He should be exactly who he said that he is, not who you're making him out to be. He's like the glasses that you put on that takes the fuzziness of this world and makes it clear. You know, I was traveling with a friend of mine this week, and we're on an airplane, and, and I asked him to do some proof text reading for me on, on an email that was going to go out to you guys, and he looked at me, and he's like, bro, if I'm honest with you, I, I forgot my glasses at home, and I can't see anything. Now, he told me something, because I, I don't wear glasses, so he told me a little secret that I want to share with you. He goes, but you know what? The best place in the world to get glasses is Dollar General. You're welcome. You're welcome. So if you need a pair of glasses, there you go. So he couldn't see anything, and then the moment he put on these glasses, Everything came into focus. See, that's what Jesus is supposed to do for you. It takes the fuzziness of this world and brings clarity into focus. The reality is, though, it takes a lot of humility to put on glasses for the first time. Like you have to actually you have to confess that you need the glasses. You have to confess that you don't see everything. If you're following Jesus' logic here, here's what you'll notice, that Jesus brings light to everyone, and yet most people reject him. I'm going to show you that in a second, but... Before I do that, let me, let me state something to you. Jesus brings light to everyone because everyone needs a Savior. You hear what I'm saying? You need a Savior. Listen, it really doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter that, that, you, that your sins have piled up and you feel so disconnected from God because, listen, your sins pale in comparison to the grace that's found in Jesus at the cross. You need to know that you are not too far gone for Jesus. And some of you, Some of you need to stop kidding yourself. You're not as good as you think you are. See, you you might be living all these good lives and have philanthropic um, lives that you give to charities and you do these good things, but I've got bad news for you. It's not good enough because whose standard are you living by? Jesus' standard is perfection, and that ain't you. You've done some good stuff, but you need a savior too. The problem is this. The problem is, is a lot of us reject Jesus because we think that we can never be good enough. And then others of us reject Jesus because we think that we can do it on our own. Both of those are a lie. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone. You need a Savior. Here's what he says, which gives light to everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. When you read that, you should should cringe a little bit. Jesus gives light to everyone, but the world did not know him. See, again, some people rejected him because they never felt like they would be good enough. Others of them rejected him because they felt like they were too good. And it's the same exact problem that we deal with today. Church, you have to get this. I don't want you to miss Jesus. And I promise you, you can. The same religious elite of the day who spent their entire lives studying the scriptures walked with the living God right in front of them, and they missed him. Don't don't kid yourself. 
You can walk in religiosity your entire life and still miss Jesus. You can go through the motions. You can show up here. You can tithe here. You can live a religious life and still miss Jesus. And then other people, other people walked away from Jesus because they never thought that they would be good enough. People hid in their shame and they missed Jesus. Don't miss him. There's nothing more important in the world than getting him right. And John tells you exactly who he is. Look at verse 10, who made the world. He's the creator. He tells you this in verse 3, all things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What he's saying is this, Jesus made everybody and everything. That means that he made you. He made you, and he sets the rules for how to live. But he not only did that, notice he says that he was in the world. That means that he was a person. What's amazing about this, and don't miss it, is that the creator became the creation. We call this, theologians call this the incarnation. It means that he put on flesh. It's the most, it's the most incredible miracle in the entire Bible. You might be thinking, well, what about the resurrection? Listen, the resurrection is incredible, but you would expect that from God. Think about the incarnation. God, who spoke, hung the stars in the sky, created galaxies, spoke life into you. He could have came as a ruler. He could have come as a king. He could have come conquering. And yet, what he was born was 2,000 years ago in obscurity in Palestine in a manger as a baby that had no control over anything and had to be fed by his parents and was completely vulnerable in every way. It's the most humbling proposition in all of life. You worship a savior that died with 11 friends, never wrote a book, never had a, a worldwide platform, and yet he is the most popular human being to ever live. God himself became a man. He incarnated himself as a baby, the most humbling estate ever. God is the incarnation. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, he says, if we do not understand that Jesus is fully man and fully divine, we will quickly fall into heresies, presenting a false Christ in a false gospel. He went on to say that the doctrine of the incarnation is the hinge on which the Christian life turns. If you know me, uh, you know my favorite lunch spot to do meetings at is CT Taqueria. Um, you, you might laugh because you've probably gone there with me once or twice, and I always get the, I always get the, the salad, the house salad, with carne asada, right? Carne asada, meat. Listen, the second most beautiful thing God ever created was the cow, medium rare, with a bone in it, eaten perfect. Carne means meat, flesh. Jesus is carnation. He is God in the flesh. It, it, literally, if you wrap your minds around it, the image of God, when you think about God the Father, it is you're going to see him in the face of Jesus. You have to understand the creator left everything in order to step off of his throne, to come and humble himself, to become the creation. John Calvin said it like this, the son of God became a man so that man might become the sons of God. Do you see how much you are loved? He doesn't want you to find your own way or to create your own path. He wants you not to be confused about your identity. He wants you to know that he cared so deeply about you that he incarnated himself. He stepped off his throne to live your perfect life, die your death so that you could live and swim in the freedom of the gospel. So you could be the person he's always created you to be. Like, you know, C.S. Lewis, and he says, everything in the dark looks exactly the same. And yet when you shine light on it, you begin to see the distinctions between the things. Jesus wants to shine light into your reality so that you can see that you are a beautifully created object. He came to show you the difference between the counterfeit identities that all look the same in the dark and the real thing. 
That's why whenever you live this world without seeing Jesus in his light, everything feels the same and looks the same and it all overpromises and underdelivers. Advent is meant to let you slow down to see reality the way it was always supposed to be. Now, let me give you a little historical context to what John's talking about here. We can, we can process and apply all day long, but I want you to see what he's talking about here because John is addressing something. In John's day, there was the leading heresy of the day was this thing called Gnosticism. Gnostics is where we get the word knowledge from. Um, they, they believed that the spiritual life was all that there was and the physical life was not. So what they ended up doing is they ended up rejecting Jesus' humanity, not his deity. Now, that's important because in today's world, we actually get it the opposite, right? We, we don't really believe in a spiritual life. We only believe in a physical life. So we reject Jesus' deity and we talk about him as a good man. Like he's a great moral teacher and this, that, and the other. Here's what I would tell you is you gotta get both right. And John wanted you to see that both are absolutely necessary. And if you don't get both of those right, you're always going to, you're going to lean one way or the other, and you're going to worship a counterfeit. If God is not God, if he's only out there, if he's only this transcendent being that you will never be able to touch, it's just like Islam. When you ask a Muslim, how do you know that you're going to be saved? They would say, only God knows, only Allah knows, because they don't have a personal relationship with God. Now, if God is just this great moral teacher and he's not God, then he actually can't do anything to help your life. John says he's both. Look at it in verse 10. I want to show it to you. He says, in, he was in the world, that's humanity, and the world was made through him, that's divinity. Yet the world did not know him. Hang with me for a second. The Bible claims that God has to be both, Jesus has to be both fully God and fully man. And that's super important because Jesus had to be fully God so that he could be perfect and sinless. And yet he had to be fully man so that he could enter into your pain. He could be tempted in every way, as the book of Hebrews says, everything that you've experienced so that he could become your substitute on the cross. The Christmas story is about God stepping off of his throne, incarnating himself, putting on flesh so that you and I could be back in a relationship with him. <laughs> you see, it's not just a cute story in the fable. It's about a God who came to substitute himself for you so that you could have life again. Church, you have to get Jesus right or you will reject him for a counterfeit. That word there that, Jesus, that John uses, cosmos, it's the Greek word that means world systems. What you need to know here is he's not talking about this globe. He's talking about the world systems that reject Jesus. You know why that's important? Because culture and government can never save you. It doesn't really matter if you put your trust in them or not. The world systems can't save you. They are counterfeits to the real thing. What he offers you is the real thing. Verse 11, he came, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Little Bible study. He uses the word own there twice. If you look at it in the Greek language, and it's actually in the first time that he says he came to his own, it's in the, the neuter tense, which is neutral in Greek, and the second time it's in the masculine tense. What he's doing there is he's showing that Jesus is using the word own in two different ways. The first time, it's his own creation. It's neutral. Second time, it's you. Here's what he's saying in reality. The creation didn't reject Jesus. We did. There's nothing wrong with the creation. Matter of fact, Jesus will tell you that the rocks, the rocks are crying out. They're groaning for redemption. He's saying that the world's not sick. This globe, the world's not sick. We are. And we are in danger of rejecting the true light all the time. But here's the good news. If you underline words, if you circle words, if you star words in your Bible, here's the word you need to underline. He came. See, the good news is that Jesus came. He came. Don't miss that. He came for you. 
He came to fix this world. Y'all, God doesn't reject you. We rejected God. See, that's the starting place to understanding the beauty of the gospel. He came. Paul would say in Romans 5 eight, while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to make our shame go away. Matter of fact, he incarnated himself while we were still helpless and hopeless. He came to his own creation, which by the way means that he makes the rules. It belongs to him. See, because the Christmas story is real though, he offers you and I the greatest gift on the planet. It might be one of the single best verses in the entire Bible. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. At Christmas and Advent, it's about choosing to receive him. It's about slowing down enough to recognize that Jesus came to rescue and redeem you, and you don't have to reject him anymore. Listen to what Jesus says. The one who created everything, the one who entered in, the the one who did all of this came so that all who might receive him. Now, I'm no no linguistic genius, but that word all there, it means all. It means you. It means me. It means it doesn't really matter what your past was or what your family lineage is. It doesn't really matter the doubts that you carry. Listen to me. It is for you. To all who would receive him, to all who would believe in him, you have the right to become children of God. Now, if you underline words in your Bible, that word believe, it's a super important word in John's gospel. It's the Greek word pastuo, which literally means to believe in, to give your life to. It's, it's not an intellectual ascent because here's what I know. In the South, for many of us, um, you're, you're like my nine-year-old daughter. If you ask my nine-year-old daughter if she believes in Jesus, she would say, of course I do. It's the air that she breathes. It's all that she knows, right? It's all that she's ever heard of. She has an intellectual belief in Jesus. But to pastuo means to give your life to. Uh, the, the, best, the best illustration I could come up with is like this. You see these beautiful, blue, amazing chairs that we just got last week. I can tell you all day long that these chairs are great chairs. They're comfortable chairs. They were expensive chairs, even though we didn't pay for them. A blessing from the Lord. And they're they're chairs that you should sit in. But until you actually take a seat, until you actually pastuo in that chair, you can tell me all day long that you believe these chairs will hold you, and yet you're not trusting in the chair until you actually sit down in the chair. Belief, pastuo, is a posture. (laughs) Saving faith doesn't actually happen until you pastuo. Saving faith doesn't actually happen until you sit in the chair. Until you take the intellectual belief that you have and then you actually take it from going from this to this. See, John says, all of those who pastuo, all those who go like this, all those who give themselves to the Lord, what they do is they receive a new name. Can I tell you the thing that held me back from following Jesus my entire life? Was not that I, I didn't have an intellectual problem. I didn't, I didn't think that God didn't raise from the dead. I just couldn't understand how he would accept somebody like me. I couldn't understand how God would love somebody like me. My shame, every single time that I went back, what it did is it made me feel like I was taking advantage of God. Like I couldn't receive him. Like I struggled to receive anything from you. Maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I love to serve other people. But the moment that I need something, you're like, you're gonna bring a meal to my house? Nuh-uh, right? I mean, am I the only one that's like that? 
Do you know how offensive that is to God? That Jesus would step off of his throne, he would die for you, and then I would look at him and I would say, God, I can't receive that. I'm too, I'm too prideful in myself to receive that because of my own shame. Listen to what he says. He says, the gospel's already done. Jesus looked at me and he says, I've already done everything necessary to save you. It's not about you. I've already lived your perfect life so I could cover up your shame. I've already entered in and I know your shame and I still choose you. He died his death to purchase my redemption. What I need to do is pastuo. I need to stop believing intellectually and start living out the faith that he has given me. Did you know whenever you get adopted, you get a new name? And when you get a new name, you get a right to everything that belongs to that family. Have you ever walked through an adoption process with somebody? You know what happens? The kids, they all line up, and there's a bunch of adults in the back. And the kids start to measure the adults. They're like, if I'm going to win a Heisman Trophy like Caleb Williams did last night, you've got to be a little taller. I can't take that family. Let me see your 401k and your net worth because honestly, I got to like, the life I've lived, I can't live that. Any- That's not how it happens. You know, I was, I was with Clayton and Katie the moment that they got to adopt their kids, Paige and Tyler, and we walked into the courtroom and it was the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. The judge brought the kids up to the front and they asked them, do you want, do you want a new name? And they put the gavel down and he says, you now are a felt. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen because at that moment, the kids don't choose the parents. The parents choose the kids. And they know everything about those kids. They know their past. They know everything about them. Listen to me. You don't choose God. God chose you, and he knows everything about you. And whenever they got chosen, they got all of the rights and all the inheritance of the parent. You get all of that. John is saying that when you understand, when you pastuo in Jesus, the courtroom is changed from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. That if you'll just receive it, you'll get a new name. I've told you this before. You know, we like to think about taking the Lord's name in vain as like you say a bad word. You know, that's not what that means at all. Don't do that, but that's not what that means. It, it, it means like when my wife and I got married, she came up to the altar, she took my name as her name. If she were to go and live a crazy, scandalous life, she would have taken my name in vain. What the gospel is telling you is you get a new name. Don't take it in vain. Take it in pastuo. Trust him. Walk with him. Listen to it again. But to all who did receive him, who believed, who pastuoed in his name, he gave the right. You see that? That's a gift. He gave the right to become a child of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but of God. The true light entered in, and he has given you the right to become a child of God. Again, the first time I heard the gospel, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get how a God would love me. I struggled so hard of this concept of a loving God, but the hope that John is giving you is that all you have to do is receive it. You don't actually have to get it intellectually. You simply have to believe in his name, and then you'll be given the right to become a child of God. You need to understand this. And I know this is not cliche, but listen to me, because it's true. You aren't born a child of God. You're born in the image of God. You're not born a child of God. You have to be reborn to become a child of God. 
See, for a lot of you, you just believe that by nature of your birth, you have a birthright into God's kingdom, and Jesus is telling you no, because if that were true, then the incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection would not matter at all. He has purchased your redemption. He has purchased your adoption. And some of you just need to pastuo for the very first time so that you could be given the right to become a child of God because of Jesus, because he entered in, because he lived your perfect life, because Christmas, because the creator became the creation. He gives all, 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 all of you who would receive it the right to become a child of God. Imagine it like this. Imagine that you got into a horrible accident and you wake up from your consciousness and you're on a gurney in the back of a, an ambulance and the guy looks at you and he says, hey, don't worry. We're on our way to a hospital right now. And what I need you to know is you're gonna be okay. We got there right in time. You know, at that moment, you only have two choices. You can actually believe him, trust him, and lay there, or you can try to get yourself up and help out. And if you do that, you're only gonna make matters worse. Y'all, for a lot of us, what we have to understand is this is what faith in Jesus looks like. At some point after you pastuo, you have to understand that Jesus really is trustworthy. You need to lay there and receive the gift that he has given you because if you try to get up or if you don't believe it, what you end up doing is you end up creating more problems for yourself. You end up walking into a false reality. You are offered a new name, a new identity, which actually can bring light to reality of this world. It can bring joy to your life. It can take your past brokenness and it can create a new family. You know, I told you the book of John it's like Jesus' LinkedIn profile. It shows you the reality of the world the way that it was always supposed to be. One of the things I love about this book is that 90% of it, of the book of John, is different than the other gospels. They call it the synoptic gospels. The Matthew, Mark, Luke simply means same. The book of John gives you 90% new information, and he's doing that on purpose. See, John wrote his gospel about 40 years later than the other apostles because he wanted you to see reality. He wanted to fill in the gaps. He wanted you to see how it all works so that you could simply lay there and trust Jesus. You can lay there and trust that he offers you a new name. Let me, let me show you a couple of these because as you connect the dots, it's absolutely beautiful and amazing. John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word. Logos to theos. It literally means God was the word. In the beginning. It's, it's pointing back to creation. What he wanted to show you is in the beginning, when God created, God took chaos, nothing, and created order out of it. Sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, and all that you've seen is it's begun to unravel where order is continually becoming chaotic until, until Jesus steps foot, on the stage, uh, steps foot onto the stage and he begins to bring order back into chaos. If you actually flip over to John chapter 19, what you see is that Jesus, at the end of his life, it tells you, John tells you he was crucified on the sixth day and he rose on the first day of the week. What he wants to show you is something absolutely beautiful is happening. On the last day of old creation, Jesus would put your sin and shame to death so that he could commence a new creation. He can bring order back into chaos again. He can do what you and I can never do. Y'all, sin has entered into this world and it has begun to unravel over and over and over again on all of our lives. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see this. Go turn on the news or have a conversation in this room for 10 minutes and what you'll find is there's sick families, there's marriages that are struggling, anxiety that is high. All the order of God's creation has become chaotic and yet Jesus, by the power of his word, wants to bring order back to your chaotic life. See, John does this over and over again. He wants to show you something beautiful. Did you know that whenever Jesus was crucified, it says that he was buried in a tomb by a rich man man named Joseph of Arimathea. Do you know where that tomb was? In a garden. 
You know what that's more than? The very last time that God was ever able to speak to anybody face to face was in a garden. The very next time that God speaks to somebody face to face, her name is Mary Magdalene and she's sitting in a garden where God is showing you that because of Jesus raising from the dead, he can take the very thing that would bring death and bring life again. When Moses asked to see Jesus' face, what does God tell him? You can't. He hides, his, he hides his face in the cleft of a rock because it would almost be like looking piercingly into the sun or into these lights right here. If you do that, you'll never see again. And yet, because of Jesus, you can look into the face of God face to face again. Now, here's even better. After Jesus meets with Mary Magdalene, the very next thing that he does is he goes and finds the disciples, and it says that he breathed on them. You know what? That's a little weird, right? We come up with COVID season. If somebody comes and breathes in your face, it might be a little goofy, but you know why he did that? Do you know what sets you apart from every other animal on the planet? You have the very breath of life in you. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he walks up to the disciples and it was like he was breathing life back into them. He was showing them that the spirit of the living God has coming to live inside of you, that he would give you life again. Paul would tell you to you this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, all who receive him, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Do you get this because of Jesus? Because he, born, he was born into this world. The Christmas story is real. Because he lived your perfect life and died your death, he can breathe new life into you. When Ezekiel is looking at these dry bones, God says, who can make him come alive again? He says, nobody can. God looks at him and says, I can. And he breathed life into dry bones. And what God wants to do for you is show you that there is a new creation and his name is Jesus. And for all who pastua, for all who would receive him, for all who would go from this to this, you can be born again. For all who receive him can be called children of God. See, it isn't because of anything you've done. It's because of what he did. Look at it, verse 13. For all who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Y'all, I know a lot of people who have intellectually assented to Jesus. I know a lot of people who walk through this life with one foot in and one foot out. God, you can have this, but you can't have this. And I know we'd never say it because you just don't say those kind of things. But that's the life we live. If I were to ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Of course you do. Right? You're a Christian in the South. But let me just ask you, do you pastuo? Honestly, that's the real question. You, you realize that the Bible says that even the demons believe in Jesus and they shudder. You know what the difference between the demons and those who pastuo is? Submission. It's all who believed in him are given the right to become children of God. You can't make yourself come alive again any more than you can make the creation happen. You need God. You don't need your voice. You need God's word. Listen, he is inviting you into a new family if you will just receive him. If you were here last week, you noticed last week I did all this apologetic type stuff because I wanted to show you that the proof is in the pudding. Every, that all the evidence points to that Jesus is really who he said that he is. This week, you need to take a step of faith. You need to sit in the chair. For some of us, we need to finally receive. We need to finally pastuo. We need to finally recognize in humility that we can't save ourselves. And listen, for a lot of us, it's because we're just running too hard and too fast to recognize who he is. He's like the beauty sitting in the subway station. It's not that we don't like it. It's just we're too busy. Advent is an invitation to slow down and worship. 
to slow down and receive him, to recognize him, to see that he is creator, savior, light. He is the life. Just as God brought order into chaos by creating the world, Jesus came to bring order into the chaotic spaces of your life. He wants to let you rest and have joy. He wants you to worship and he wants you to receive him. Here's how I want to end this. I want to end it with an invitation to receive. If you'll stand with me. What, I'd like to, what I want you to do, actually, I just want you to put your hands out, and I want to pray over you. Hands out in a posture of receiving. For some of you, you need to receive Jesus. Maybe for the very first time, you need to go from my intellectual knowledge, but still clinging to my self-reliance to, God, I'm yours. If you've never truly done that, I want to invite you to. I want, next week, we're actually going to do baptisms in this room. I can't think of a better way of your submission to finally receive him than to be baptized. And it's going to take humility. I know a lot of people. It's embarrassing to you. I get that. Like, you feel like, man, I've been walking with Jesus, but I've never actually, don't worry. But God's not embarrassed by you. Nobody cares. What we all care about, what I care about, what Jesus cares about is, have you pursued him? And if you haven't, what if next weekend was the weekend that you did that? I'd love for you to come talk to me if that's you. For others of you, man, the reason why God hasn't filled your hands is because they're filled with all your stuff. I want to pray over you in a posture of emptiness, of neediness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, Jesus tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, of my insults and my persecutions, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, would you fill our empty hands as we receive your goodness? God, would you make us weak so we can be filled with the power of resurrection life through the spirit of the living God inside of us? Would you help us to fan into flame the gifts of God that you have given us through your spirit? Would you help us to receive in a posture of humility the risen Christ, the incarnate one, the life everlasting? Lord, we need you. God, if there's anything in us that prohibits us from going all in with you, I pray that this would be a moment, a posture of confession, of neediness, of receiving. So now who is able to do all more than what we could ever ask or imagine, to him who is glorious and good, we ask that you would fill us with more of you. In Jesus' name.